This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and I'll be your host. This episode 251, entitled The Messiah in Psalm 72. Yes, we are continuing to work through the various passages within the Hebrew Bible, what Christians call the Old Testament, in order to find the verses that influenced the shape and expectation of Israel's Messiah, particularly his person, his role, and of course, his relationship to the God of Israel. This week we'll be looking at Psalm 72, and we'll be looking at how both early Christians and how prominent Jewish interpreters drew upon Psalm 72 in order to fill out their picture of the Christ, the Messiah of the people of God. So here are some questions I would like to explore in this week's episode. First, who is the subject of Psalm 72, and what is his relationship to the God of Israel? Second, in what ways does the Israelite God empower the subject of the psalm? Third, how did Jewish interpreters draw upon Psalm 72 in order to speak about the promised Messiah's pre-existence? That's a very interesting question. And lastly, in what ways do we find the New Testament Gospels depicting Jesus Christ in light of the contents of Psalm 72? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. My first point today is a close look at Psalm 72. It is a medium-length psalm, so we'll be able to read it in its entirety, and give a fair amount of commenting on the more noteworthy verses within its passage. So let's begin. Psalm 72, verse 1, which is a psalm of Solomon. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted with justice. So what's interesting here is that right from the beginning, we see the petition to have God share his roles, his prerogatives, and his privileges with a particularly qualified human ruler, namely the king of Israel. The king of Israel is to be enacting judgment under the empowerment of of God's authorization. God is the cosmic judge, but God is sharing that role of judge and the justice and judgment that's involved in being the judge with a human being, a qualified human being, the ruler of Israel, that is the king. Let's move on. Verse 3, let the mountains bring peace to the people and the hills in righteousness May he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. So the subject here is still the Israelite king, still a human ruler, a monarch that is a member of the human race. 
and he is empowered to vindicate, to save, and to execute justice. So he is the vindicator, he is the savior, and he is the judge. But he does this under the empowerment of the God of Israel. In fact, this human king is doing things that one might think that only God is able to do. But God can certainly empower qualified agents to perform God's tasks without infringing on the strictness of unitary monotheism. Let's move on. Verse 5. Let them fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he come down like rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth in his days. May the righteous flourish, and abundance of peace till the moon is no more. May he also rule from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. That's verses 5 through 8. And so we can see that the Israelite king is promised worldwide rule and dominion. And it's very easy to see the echoes, the deliberate echoes, to Genesis chapter 1, where Adam, the initial human being, is promised to have dominion over all of God's creation. Everything that God has created is put under the feet of human beings in Genesis chapter 1. And it seems that although humanity has fallen from that particular role, it is to be regained, particularly in the Israelite king, in the monarch of the Jewish people. So the Davidic king regains the role of Adam as God's vice-regent over creation. And so it's quite clear that this particular king is going to be understood within messianic expectation. Verse 9 is an interesting passage. The NASB says, Let the nomads of the desert bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. So while my version says the nomads of the desert, which seems to suggest human nomads, the Hebrew might actually refer to creatures of the desert, desert creatures. And the Halot Hebrew Aramaic lexicon also confirms this suggestion. It would indicate that the worldwide dominion that originally was promised to Adam but is going to be fulfilled in the Israelite king involves the dominion over the animals. No surprise there, because Adam was to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and every creeping thing on the earth. So if this passage does indeed mean that desert creatures are going to bow down and worship this human king, that would not be such a surprise, because we already have that theology quite explicitly stated in the very first chapter of the Bible. So it's something to consider and something to chase down for those that are interested in those sort of word studies. Let's move on. Verse 10. Let the kings of Tarshish and of the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. So here we can see that human rulers are offering their gifts in prostration and worship to a human king. So we have human beings worshiping other human beings in a way that doesn't take anything away from the worship that belongs to God alone. 
This is something that the psalmist is praying that God would allow to happen, that the whole world would come together under the rule of this single human Israelite figure, the Israelite king, which is climactically going to be understood as the Israelite Messiah. Verse 11 has a little bit more of the same. Let all kings bow down before him, all nations serve him. So now we have all nations, namely all Gentiles, are going to be bowing down and serving a human being. A human being can be worthy of worship, the bending of the knee, prostration, and service if God empowers the human king to be worthy of such accolades. And that is exactly what is taking place here in the Old Testament. Verse 12, why is it that he is worthy of worship and adoration and service? It says, for he will deliver the needy when he cries for help, the afflicted also, and him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and the needy and the lives of the needy he will save. So we could see here that this empowered and authorized human Israelite king functions as a deliverer and a savior. The needy he's going to save, and he's going to deliver those who cry out for help. So he is a deliverer, and he is a savior. And that is why the nations are going to worship him. They're going to bow down to him. What else is going to happen to him? Verse 15. So may he live, and may the gold of Sheba be given to him, and let them pray for him continually. Let them bless him all day long. So here, the human king is the object of blessing. They are going to bless a human being, a human being that is empowered and authorized by the God of Israel. He's not confused with the God of Israel. God of Israel and this human king have not been collapsed into some sort of single being. They are quite clearly distinguished. Let's move on. Verses 16 and 17. May there be an abundance of grain in the earth on top of the mountains. Its fruit will wave like the cedars of Lebanon. And may those from the city flourish like vegetation on the earth. So there's worldwide growth and prosperity under the rule and dominion of God's qualified ruler. This qualified ruler who is a member of the human race. Then we get to verse 17, which is arguably the most interesting verse, at least when it comes to messianic expectation. It says, may his name endure forever. May his name increase as long as the sun shines. And let men bless themselves by him. Let all nations call him blessed. So we have this petition, this song that says, may his name endure forever and may his name increase before the sun. Now, my translation says, may his name increase as long as the sun shines, but the shining of the sun there has kind of been added as kind of a supplementary verb to make sense of what is actually taking place there because there's some ambiguity. There's some ambiguity in the Hebrew. Literally, the Hebrew says, may his name increase before the sun. So we have this preposition before. What does it mean for the king's name to increase before the sun? Now the Hebrew preposition before, which is lifne, 
could be understood locally, as in, may his name increase before the sun in the presence of the sun, right there, physically there in the presence of the sun. So it could mean that. It could also be understood temporally. May his name increase before the sun, as in prior in time to the sun, before the sun was created. May his name increase before the sun from a temporal standpoint. So the preposition before is used in the Hebrew Bible to mean before as in in the presence of, but also before temporally as in before in time. So we'll come back and we'll talk about that a little bit more because it's quite clear that prominent Jewish interpreters understood this passage in regard to the Messiah and that his name pre-existed the creation of the Son. That's very interesting and fascinating. And it might have some implications on how we interpret at least one important passage in the Gospel of John. We'll find out more in a little bit. Let's finish off Psalm 72, verse 18 and verse 19 say, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders, and blessed be his glorious name forever. And may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. So just to be clear, the God who is empowering this human king is a single person. This God is described as the one who alone works wonders, indicating that he is a single person. And of course, there are a variety of singular pronouns and verbs in this verse. The whole earth will be filled with his glory, a singular pronoun. Blessed be his glorious name forever. He works wonders with a third-person singular verb. And this is how the human Israelite king is able to perform all of these great and wonderful feats because the God of Israel is empowering and authorizing the human king to do such great and mighty things. That's Psalm 72. Let's look and see how it was interpreted by prominent Jewish interpreters. That's our second point. Point number two, the use of Psalm 72 in Judaism. So Psalm 72 was picked up by the Jewish rabbis who put together the contents of the Babylonian Talmud. In the Babylonian Talmud, there is this saying that appears not once, but actually twice. It appears in the tractate Pesherim 54a, and it also appears in the tractate Nedarim 39b. And it's worded the same way in both of them, indicating that both of these writers are drawing upon something that was earlier. But the passage that we're going to read has seven things that these Jewish teachers felt pre-existed creation. And they're going to go on and give passages from the Old Testament, what they would call the Hebrew Bible, to prove this particular point. But the last thing on the list, the seventh thing in the list of seven, is the name of the Messiah. Not the person of the Messiah, not the being of the Messiah, just his name. It's a preexistence of his name, and that's going to be very, very important as we continue to move forward. They didn't believe in the conscious living pre-existence of the Messiah. But 
it was quite common for things of value and importance within Judaism as having a preexistence within God's plans and purposes and thoughts. And so let's read this passage. This is out of the Babylonian Talmud, again, out of Pesherim 54a and also in Netarim 39b. Seven things were created before the world was made, and these are they. Torah, repentance, the Garden of Eden, Gehenna, the throne of glory, the house of the sanctuary, and the name of the Messiah. So we can see here these are very prominent things within Israelite religion, the Torah, repentance, the Garden of Eden, Gehenna, throne of glory, the house of sanctuary, and the Messiah's name. Again, not the person of the Messiah, not his being, just his name. His name was already considered and created prior to the world being made. And the passage goes on, and it's going to list all of these things, the Torah, repentance, Garden of Eden, Gehenna, the throne, and the house of sanctuary. And after each of them are listed, they are supplied with a passage from the Old Testament that suggests that these things are actually pre-existing. So the same thing is going to take place when it comes to the name of the Messiah. And what these Jews do is they quote Psalm 72, verse 17, the passage that says that his name is going to increase before the sun. And they understand the preposition before there temporally. His name is going to increase before the sun was created. And so the quote here from this passage says that the name of the Messiah was created before the world was made. Quote, his name shall endure forever and has existed before the sun. Psalm 72, verse 17, end quote. So this is interesting. They were drawing on Psalm 72. They understood it messianically. They saw the Messiah as someone distinct from the God of Israel, but the Messiah was someone who was heavily empowered with God's privileges and prerogatives, someone who was worthy of worship, someone who arguably was worthy of adoration even by the animals, but certainly by the Gentiles and all the nations. But also, he is so prominent that his name existed before the creation of the Son. And we know this was a prominent Jewish expectation because this appears twice in the Babylonian Talmud. Within the collection, it's clear that multiple Jewish rabbis were drawing on this sort of theology. So let's move to our third point, which is the use of Psalm 72 in the Gospel of John. Now, there's a lot of interesting things we could say about the Gospel of John and how the various verses from Psalm 72 might have impacted its theology, but I wanted to focus on two in particular. I want to focus on the way in which the Son of God in the Gospel of John is empowered by God to act as the judge, to enact justice and judgment. So in John chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus says, Not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. John chapter 5, verse 22. So just like we see in Psalm 72, verse 1, the God of Israel has empowered 
the Son of God, which is a title for the king, to enact judgment. In fact, God has given all judgment to the Son. And Jesus repeats this and gives a little bit more explanation a few verses later in chapter 5, verse 27, where he says, He gave him, namely the Father gave the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. John 5, 27. So Jesus is qualified to function as the authorized agent enacting judgment and justice and effectively being the cosmic judge on God's behalf because precisely he is the Son of Man, because he's a human being. He's a member of the human race. He is this qualified Son of Man figure who represents human beings and other reasons in the Gospel of John. The Son of Man is the apocalyptic revealer, the revealer of heavenly secrets, that sort of thing. But the point is, this is someone who has received the prerogative from God, from the Father, the only true God, to enact judgment and justice. And the reason for it is that he's a man. He's a human being. He's a member of the human race. And the next thing I want to look at is the famous John 8:58, Because I think this actually is able to have a little bit of clarity added to it once we understand the fact that Jews were already thinking about the name of the Messiah already having pre-existed the creation of the Son. So, of course, the name of the Messiah would already pre-exist someone like Abraham, who came after the creation of this big glowing ball that hangs in the sky. So in John 8, let's start in verse 56, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am he. And it should be I am he there. There is a goemi there, and you have to supply a predicate. And the phrase there, a goemi, I am he, actually has the emphatic use of the pronoun. Whenever you have ego placed there in the nominative, right before the verb to be, then it's there with emphasis. So it's not just before Abraham was born, I am he. The emphasis there and the stress has to go on the pronoun. That's what the purpose of the Greek actually indicates. So it's I am he. Jesus is pointing to himself and he's saying, I am this one. I am he. And the phrase I am he, within the context of John chapter 8, and actually the theology of the entirety of the Gospel of John, is a self-declaration to be the Messiah, to be the Christ of Israel. So Jesus is saying, I am he. I am the Messiah. Now, of course, they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They think he's a false Messiah. They think that he is a messianic pretender, someone who's leading people astray. He was recently accused of having a demon and being a Samaritan. Those are the sort of things that you would say about the promised Israelite ruler. But Jesus is saying, prior to Abraham, I am he. And we know that the Jews, because we've seen this based on Psalm 72, 
they're already believing and saying that the Messiah, particularly his name, existed prior to the creation of the Son. And as Christians, we know what the name of the Messiah is. The name of the Messiah is Jesus. It's Yeshua. So before Abraham was born, I am he. I am the Messiah. The name that pre-existed the Son was Jesus. So I want to encourage that interpretation. I think it actually makes sense. It places the passage in its context. It gives an explanation to the pre-existence that's unarguably in the passage, but the pre-existence is the pre-existence of the Messiah's name, which Jesus claims is actually belonging to him. I am he. Not just I am, I am he. Let's move to our fourth and final point, the use of Psalm 72 and the Gospel of Matthew, because it's quite difficult to read all the discussion in Psalm 72 about all these kings and these rulers and these mighty people coming to Jesus and giving him these gifts and worship and prostration without thinking of Matthew chapter 2. So Matthew 2 verse 1 says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 2. So Matthew has this account to where these prominent men come from the east and they come to worship this newborn king. The newborn king of the Jews, they come to offer him gifts, they come to worship him, and they come to offer respect to him. And it is almost certain that that has been influenced by the wording and the theology of Psalm 72, where all the nations come and bow down before this qualified Israelite king. It's quite clear that the point that's being made in that is that Herod is not the legitimate king. Jesus, the Messiah, is the legitimate king, and thereby he is worthy of this particular worship. So there you have it. That's the impact of Psalm 72 on prominent Jewish interpreters and on early Christians. We didn't get to look at all the places in which Psalm 72 has left its mark on the New Testament writers, but I wanted to focus on what I thought were the most important and most noteworthy. So thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we continue to look at the various Psalms that have impacted the shape and the expectation of the Israelite Messiah. We'll be looking next week at Psalm 89. So please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound and non-negotiable truths about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. You can support us for absolutely free by subscribing on iTunes, subscribing on YouTube, giving us an honest review online, and sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. If you'd like to offer a financial donation, you can check out the episode description for a PayPal link. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.